Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. We pick up where we left off with the last episode with a taste test of one more edible flower that you just might have growing in your yard. It's roses. Both the rose petals and the rose hips from that rose plant are edible. We talk with master rosarian Debbie Arrington, who says some rose petals and rose hips taste better than others. Well, which tastes the best? Stick around, you'll find out. When it comes to applying pesticides, read and follow all label directions. That's the takeaway message from Giselle Schoeninger, the organic educator for Kellogg Garden Products. But, she explains, maybe you don't need to apply any pesticides to control those problematic insects and diseases in your garden. We'll tell you about less toxic alternatives that work, as well as what to look for in a safer pesticide product. When you first handled your tomato plants at the beginning of the season, did you rub your finger along the stem and pick up the scent of those tiny hairs? Oh, don't you deny it. You did it. You did it. We all enjoy that first whiff of the scent of a tomato, a promise of things to come. Now, you might recall back in episode three, we learned the benefits of planting tomatoes deeply. And many gardeners think that those fine hairs along the stem become roots when you bury much of the stem of that young tomato plant in the ground. Well, our favorite college horticultural professor, retired Debbie Flower, says, no, they don't become roots. Well, then where do those new tomato roots come from? And what's the purpose of those tiny tomato hairs along the stem, other than to give you a show for your nose every spring? Well, you might be surprised to learn of those hairs' true purpose. I was. We learn something new every time on Garden Basics with Farmer Fred. And we'll do it again today here in episode 35, and we'll do it in under 30 minutes. Let's go. You may recall recently we talked about edible flowers here on the Garden Basics podcast, and we were talking about all sorts of edibles that you may not be aware of that you can munch on, things like daylily flowers or even squash flowers, a lot of your herb flowers, the basil, the rosemary, all those flowers are just so tasty, along with citrus flowers. And then the subject of roses came up. And our guest that we were talking to about edible flowers, Gail Pothauer, expressed an interest in trying roses, but uh, had never tried it. And so I I contacted a few of my rosarian friends to see if, uh, well, what does a rose petal taste like? And we're talking about petals here. And Debbie Arrington replied and said, well, of course I did. (laughs) (laughs) And here's Debbie Arrington now. And Debbie, uh, you actually have conducted a taste test of various rose petals. Yes, I did. And, um, well, I I should note that uh, besides other things, I'm president of the Sacramento Rose Society. Um, And so I am surrounded by a lot of rose experts. And we are always looking for new things to do with roses. Uh, But my rose t- taste test came many years ago, back when I was a food editor, and I wrote a story about edible flowers. And so then we did a little taste test of, well, what do flowers taste like and which ones are good and which ones are not? And roses um, are probably one of the most easiest edible flowers that that are around you. Now, the, the thing about roses is you want to make sure they're not sprayed. Right, uh, because you know you don't want to you don't want to eat anything that you've been using uh, insecticides or 
or pesticides on or anything like that. But uh, when you think about it, roses are they're from the same family as as a, a lot of fruits. That's why you know you have rose hips on rose bushes that you know after the the roses are are developed and mature. You know that has uh, rose hip jelly and rose hip tea and all sorts of different things with that. But the flowers also are very tasty. And what we found was that the flowers that had the best fragrance, the strongest scent, tended to have the most taste in the petals also. Is that a good thing, though? Is it, was it, was it a pleasing good. flavor? It was a pleasing flavor. It was um, like a slightly sweet cloves. Hmm. Roses have a lot of vitamin C in them, so they have kind of that, oh, that citrusy note that you get from any of your citrus family, where you have that kind of kind of zesty uh, taste on the back of your tongue. You think to yourself like, oh, this is vitamin C. You know, this, you know it's, that, it's, it's slightly acidic. But, but the main flavor that you're getting out of uh, most roses is sort of like cloves. It's a little spiciness that you, that you sense on the back of your tongue. Um, what we found also was that roses, uh, the old style roses, like old garden roses, which have a ton of fragrance, they have a lot of flavor also. Uh, and I also found that the Austin roses, uh, which are big shrub roses and, and also very, very fragrant, they not only have that slightly sweet, spicy uh, cloveness to them, but if down in the little petals that are towards the center of the, the flower, they pick up a little bit of the nectar too. And so they're actually sweet, sweet, mm. like, like honey sweet. Um, so it was was interesting. We, the the ones that we found that had the the most flavor tended to be the red colored roses, and the red on them, I think part of that is that those roses tend to have a lot of fragrance, also like uh, your Mr. Lincoln's, you know, and, and other you know red roses that that have that definite oh fragrance to them. But the ones that were just like light colored white rose. They tended not to have much taste to them at all. They they kind of were like crunchy lettuce. So how are they best served? In salad, fresh. Um, it's the well, they're they're better when they're younger, you know. So with the roses been, um, if it's already bloomed and on its last legs and beginning to brown and stuff like that, it's over the top and it and it tastes sort of like wilted lettuce. But if the rose is fresh, it has that crispness and it has that kind of slightly. Sp- spicy taste it's it's sort of it's sort of like a mild arugula mm. it's sort of like in that thing where there's there's like a little spice and bitterness but not too bitter it's more it's kind of um like a sharpness to it than than bitter and so a uh, salad it's definitely a salad ingredient and they also can be used in tea you know you can just go ahead and use the the petals and uh and you know put put them in uh, some water and let them steep is there any advantage to a single-petaled rose versus a, a multi-layered uh, rose flower? The, a lot of the single-petaled roses have a lot of fragrance. And so so they do have pretty good flavor also. You know, you could also use them in uh, to flavor, oh, uh, sorbet or uh, sugars and candy and things like that, too. So on a, I'll call it a complex, you would, you being a Rosarian would have the name for a, a, a rose flower that has rows and rows of petals. Uh-huh. Are any of those better than others, the younger ones versus the older ones or the smaller ones? Are they tastier than the larger ones? Oh, you mean the size of the roses? Of the petals. Well, of the petals, size of the petals. Well, the, 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 
small petals that are towards the center of the flower. Those are the ones that are going to pick up a little bit of the nectar from it. So those tend to have the the best uh, taste to them. And the older, the larger petals on the outside, they've been around longer. So they're like the outer. Think think of it as like a, a head of lettuce. And mm, the yeah. outer leaves of the lettuce, they tend to go limp, you know, and they tend to uh, have the less taste. While the inner leaves of the lettuce, there in the heart, they seem to have the best crispness and the best taste. Is there a bitter part to that rose petal, like the point where you yank it away from the flower, that uh, little brace uh, towards the back of the petal? Is that more bitter than the rest of the petal? No. The bitterness that I found with some of them was I, they were just older. They you know, had, had bloomed for a while and had gotten a little tired. Since you are a master rosarian, Debbie Arrington, and a mm-hmm. garden writer and a big-time vegetable gardener, defend the use of a rose bush in a food garden. Oh, because, well, a rose bush, it's, it's like a, a big sign to bees and other beneficial insects that come and get it. There's lots of stuff here. So it attracts so beneficials and pollinators. It, it, it attracts beneficials and pollinators, yeah. And it's pretty. And it's free, yeah. Yeah. And also the rose is a food plant, you know, so why not? You know, the, the thing about roses is that you got to think that r- roses are, are the favorite thing for deers to eat. They, roses are deer candy. You know, they will, you know, and wild roses, you know, out in the forest and stuff, they just go crazy over them. There's a reason why. It's because they taste good. You know, and they, they like them pr- compared to other things. So that's one of the reasons why they gravitate towards it. There you go. Roses for your garden, even if it's a food garden, you're adding another source of food to your uh, backyard cornucopia. Yes. And, and if you are seriously looking at the rose plant as a food plant, definitely let your hips develop uh, because the, hi- the hips are delicious. Roses are from the same family as plums and peaches and things like that. So the hips kind of taste like a tangy apricot flavor. They they have that sort of uh, brightness to them. And the rose hips have the most flavor of uh, any part of the plant. And so they, they make an excellent tea. They make an excellent jelly. Um, and they're just pretty, too. So I guess the way to develop rose hips is to keep your shears away from the rose bush. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, you you don't really want them to develop hips yet, you know, because they'll they stay blooming as long as you keep uh, trimming off your your spent blooms. But in the fall, you know, starting in October, go ahead and let those uh, spent blooms stay on the plant and mature, and then you'll get your rose hips, and they'll turn a nice orange and red color, and that's when you harvest them. October for California, for the warmer parts of California. For other mm-hmm. parts of the country, though, when should you stop uh, pruning back your roses to let the hips develop? About the same time, about October. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, because because uh, the, the hips will be ready in about four weeks. So in November, that'd be fine. There you go. Roses. It's part of your daily diet now. Master Rosarian Garden Writer. She is the author of the Sacramento Digs Gardening Blog, an excellent garden resource for us here locally. If you live someplace else, check it out. There's a lot of good information in there. SacDigsGardening.blogspot.com. Debbie Arrington, thanks for eating roses for us. (laughs) You're welcome. Thank you. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast has a lot of information posted at each episode. 
transcripts, links to any products or books mentioned during the show, and other helpful links for even more information. Plus, you can listen to just the portions of the show that interest you. It's been divided into easily accessible chapters. And you'll find more information about how to get in touch with us. We have links to all our social media outlets, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, a link to the FarmerFred.com website. That's where you can find out more information about the radio shows. You remember radio, right? Now, if the place where you access the podcast doesn't have that information, you can find it all at our home podcaster, Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout Buzzsprout.com. Just look for the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. You'll find a link to it in the show notes. for a quick tip. Recently, we had an extended conversation with Giselle Schoeninger. She is the organic educator for Kellogg Garden Products, and we got onto the subject of controlling bugs, controlling pests in the garden, and specifically, we were talking about spider mites. And if there's one lesson to be learned about any sort of pesticide application, you have to read and follow all label directions. Well, one thing I like to start with, uh, especially for beginning gardeners, is uh, identify the pest exactly, know exactly what the pest is, and then start with the least toxic alternative. And sometimes the least toxic alternative is just planting a plant in the right place and treating it right. But let's say you do have, uh, in this case, spider mites. You see the webbing. One way to see if it is spider mites is take a white piece of paper, put it underneath that webbing, shake the plant. And if you start seeing a little, lot of little black dots running around on that piece of paper, chances are it's spider mites. And one possible control for spider mites, if you don't have anything handy, is a good blast of water. And if you do that every day, sometimes you can control it but to step up to the next level for spider mite control you might need what's called a miticide which is an insecticide that is designed to treat mites and i I think kellogg has a product like that don't they we do okay so just to backtrack on what you said you are so right the right plant for the right pot with the right soil in the right environment You know, often people want to grow, like if you lived in San Diego, you want to grow the same plants you grew in San Diego if you moved to Reno. And it's just not (laughs) real, right? We see that all the time. And then to address what you just said about what spraying the plant off. That is my first line of defense always, even before I spray. I will hose the plant off. I will let it dry. And then I will come back and I will inspect. And then I do a just a light spray. So one of the products that Kellogg has, which I think every gardener should have this in their toolbox. And it's not just because, because Kellogg owns this company. It's because it works, it's safe, and it's safe on the honeybees. And it's called Organicide. Be Safe 3-in-1. It's available across the country at the big box stores. It's also available all over at our independent garden centers and nurseries. The active ingredient is sesame oil. So Kathy Kellogg likes to say it's like putting a salad dressing on your plants. It's food-grade oil. Um, The other ingredients are lecithin, uh, fish oil, potassium sorbate, and water. So it's a very safe product. You wanna use this at the cool part of the day because it is an oil and the oil will smother insects, soft bodied insects. So it's a three in one. It's an insecticide, 
it's a miticide, and it's a fungicide. So it, it's one product for an entire array of issues in the garden. It works, it's very effective, it also can be used as a preventative. If you have an area that you know you often get bugs in that area for whatever reason, um, you can do a light spray on the top of the foliage, on the underside of the foliage in the coolest part of the day, and the females will not lay their eggs on the foliage. They will go to a plant that doesn't have it on there. It's really extraordinary. Always read and follow the label directions for whatever product you're using. I'm, I'm reading the label right now for Organocide, and it's uh, labeled for use against uh, aphids, leaf rollers, mealybugs, thrips, whiteflies, spider mites, scale insects, certain fungal diseases as well. And that's a very important thing when using a, a product uh, an insecticide, a pesticide, if you will, is to make sure that the pest you want to control is listed on the label and that the plant you're applying it to is also listed on the label. Correct. I think what you said is one of the most important things for our gardening community to understand. I worked at the Ag Department for about five years in Central California. And really, if a customer buys a product, please read the label before you use it. Sit down with a glass of lemonade. And even if you think you know the product, read it because we find a lot of people use products incorrectly and then they wonder why they had crop failure or why something didn't work right so please i think that is a very good uh thing to recommend is that we all we want to be safe we want to use something right i don't want to overuse a product if i don't have to um so you're very right about that fred and this time of year, one of the most common mistakes a beginning gardener might make is if they have tomatoes and they see tomato worms and they're looking around for something to spray the tomato worms with. They might reach for a bottle of something thinking, well, it controls aphids and whiteflies. I'm sure it'll control tomato worms. No, it won't unless tomato worms are listed on the label. And I'm, I'm here to tell you that whatever's going to control aphids and whiteflies isn't going to control uh, tomato worms. So basically, make sure that pest is listed on the label. One other thing about insecticides I would like to point out for people shopping for insecticides, pesticides at the store is you're going to see on the front of the label one of three words. It will say either caution or warning or danger. Caution is the safest of the three. It is the least toxic of the three words. Warning is in the middle. Danger, fortunately, in this day and age, there are very few home insecticides left that have the word danger. But man, oh man, if if if, if you buy a product with the word danger, you better follow all label directions because your life is at stake and do follow whatever protective measures you need to follow if that word is there. I, I mean, I wouldn't even recommend you buy a product with the word danger on it. Always start with the word caution. And if that doesn't work, um, you can move up to the uh, signal word warning. But again, there's going to be extra precautions you have to take to protect yourself. Absolutely. And, you know, if I didn't say it yet, this product, Organicide, that we're speaking of, the Be Safe 3-in-1, it is OMRI listed. It is approved for organic production. OMRI, by the way, stands for the Organic Materials Review Institute. And if you want to find out more information about Organocide, you can visit the Kellogg Garden website, which is kelloggarden.com. 
And again, my thanks to Giselle Schoninger for talking to us about organic gardening. She is the organic garden educator for Kellogg Garden Products. Always nice to have Debbie Flower come on by and talk to us about gardening. Retired college horticultural professor Debbie Flower and Debbie, questions have been coming in. I hope you can make up some answers for us. I'll do my best. (laughs) Okay. There have been questions coming in about tomatoes. Now, you may recall a long time ago, we talked about planting tomatoes deeply in order to develop more roots. Yes. That basically you cut off all the bottom leaves and maybe just leave the top set of leaves and and you can bury a tomato plant deeply and it'll form roots right some people have the belief that it is those nice fine hairs that you see along the stem that become roots uh-huh. is uh-huh. is that true no that's not true the fine hairs on the uh that you see on the stems of the plant are something called trichomes i don't know why tri t-r-i uh and then c-h-o-m-e-s trichomes Trichomes are just extensions of the epidermal layer of the plant. There you go. And the epidermis is the outer coating of cells. And all the green parts, if they don't have bark or cork, is the technical term, uh, on, on that portion of the plant, then they have an epidermis. We have an epidermis. We humans do, and it's our skin. The epidermis is the outer coating of the leaf, of the green stem, uh, any other green parts or they're not all green. But anyway, the the young parts, the parts that have not formed uh, cork or bark. Periodically, the uh, epidermal cells uh, stick out and make things like hairs. They may also have additional cells on top of them, but uh, the trichomes are primarily um, extensions of the existing epidermal cells, and they're there for protection. They slow down wind. That's a big deal for plants because wind, as wind goes by them, it takes away the water that the plants um, are exuding out of their stoma. And if you can slow that process down, then the plant will survive a low water situation or a high heat situation better. And so that's one of the processes of uh, or one of the functions of the trichomes. So they are not, but they are not able to make roots. Uh, roots, plants make something called adventitious roots. Uh, they're roots that arise in places that they weren't previously uh, planned for, but for whatever reason, the plant decides, doesn't decide, plants do not have brains. The plant uh, responds by making roots at that location. And in order for a root to be functional, the root has to be near the vascular system of whatever it is uh, attaching to the vascular system being the plumbing in the plant. The plumbing is not at the surface. It's not at the epidermis. It's protected by the epidermis, and then it's protected by some other layers of cells. And so the adventitious root has to come from further inside of that structure. And in the case of tomatoes, uh, and actually peppers make them as well, these adventitious roots arise from inside the stem near the vascular system. They push their way through those other layers of cells and through the epidermis. Whether they get them or not or how, how easily the tomato gets these roots is based on the, the cultivar, the type, the, the, you know, whether it's a, a beefsteak or, or a juliet or whatever, the weather and how it's cared for. Um, if the plant experiences stress, 
it will um, produce more of these roots. So burying a stem could be considered a stressful situation for a plant, and that will stimulate it. Also, darkness stimulates the production of roots. Flood will, in particular, increase water. If you're watering your tomatoes a lot, you're more likely to see these adventitious roots form because uh, water situation in the soil determines um, whether the, the plant can absorb nutrients or not. Too much water, there's not enough oxygen. Plants need oxygen in their root system in order to actively absorb nutrients. If there's not enough water, the nutrients aren't coming to the roots. The roots can't grow because they need water to grow. So that's another stressful situation. Uh, disease or damage can cause these adventitious roots for um, growing. And the, the place, if you play with horticulture, you make your own plants from other plants, you're probably taking cuttings. And that's a situation where we get adventitious roots. So again, they're arising from inside of that stem close to the plumbing of the plant, and they push their way out through the other cells so that the plant can survive. So are these new roots uh, manifesting themselves as white bumps along the stem of the tomato plant? We would call that root primordia. So primordia meaning the beginning of them. And I, you know, in my book, they're either there or they're not. And so I would consider root primordia to be roots, yes. And in one callback that people who listen to this program uh, might recognize, the trichomes, are, are they a modified prickle? Wow, good question. People may That's re- a really good question. <laughs> good, I'm glad I could ask it. <laughs> <laughs> the prickles are, are no, I'm not going to go anywhere with that. Yeah, that's a very good question. Because we were talking a few weeks ago about... I'm going to try to do an alphabetical order. Uh, prickles, mm-hmm. spines, and thorns, then the difference. Right. Yes. And we learned that prickles were an epidermal structure. Right. Right. But, and they. Uh, what I was thinking about was, do they have multiple cells? Trichomes often have multiple cells, but they don't always. So... Uh, I'm writing down our trichomes modified prickles. <laughs> I didn't mean to complicate your life. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> All right. It's, uh, and once again, uh, we, we have delved beyond garden basics into in, into the mud pit of, of botany. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. There are lots of those around. <laughs> yes. We love it. But anyway, uh, the, the basic uh, line is if you see white bumps along your uh, tomato stems, that's a root trying to push out. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. Glad I got something right. I just right. found something that says rubus prickles. Morphological studies of developing rubus prickles suggest they're modified trichomes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so maybe you have to uh, modify your alphabetical order. Maybe prickles are really trichomes. Right. Hmm. Right. Hmm. It just gets murkier and murkier. Murkier. Right. I, I think at that point we'll say, Debbie Flower, we learned a lot today. Thanks for a few minutes of your time. <laughs> oh, always a pleasure. Thank you, Fred. <laughs> All right. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday, and it's available just about anywhere podcasts are handed out, and that includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Overcast, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and uh, hey Alexa, play the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, would you please? Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. We appreciate it.